From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 209, and today I'm joined by Varun Syringa. You know Varun from such series as One on Earp, Hudson and Rex, Endlings, Nurses, as well as Carter. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. So we're sitting down via isolation uh, to watch A Clockwork Orange. I'm Jeremy, and I have seen this film a few times, but not in a really long time. And I'm here with... Uh, Varun Saranga. How you guys doing? And you have not seen this film. No, I, I haven't seen this film. I've seen a lot of Kubrick's work, maybe like a modest amount, but I've always wanted to see this because I've heard it's uh, pretty shocking. Pretty shocking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'd be interesting to see what you think in terms of, because when I first saw it, I was in high school because I had a friend that was obsessed with it. And so I probably watched it too young to appreciate it properly. And a lot of it probably just went over my head and was like, well, what the fuck am I watching? Um, yeah. So I'm curious now for you as an adult watching it for the first time in like, you know, 2021 when, you know, there's been, what, what year is it? 78 or something? I've got it right here. Here is 71? Is it, uh, I thought it was, I, I wanted to say it was, it was 71. You're right. Um, so now, you know, it's 50. Oh my God, it's 50 years old. Wow. Oh shit. 50 years old. I guess I never think of the seventies as that long ago. It's I don't 50, know why. Yeah. 71 was 50 years ago. Jeez. Okay. I know, my son, my so, son and I just realized the other day that star Wars will be 50 years old in six years. Whoa. That's so <laughs> weird to think about. How old is it? Just because we watch it's because we watch seventies films all the time that like now I'm like things that take place in the seventies. Yeah. That it just never feels like a far away era. No, because it's within reach for us, right? Like someone like I was born, I was born in the 80s, but not that far away from the 70s. And my wife was born in the late 70s. My sister was born in the 70s. So it's just like, oh, shit. you know, there uh, it's it makes just those like when I hear like that the idea of like Star Wars being 50 years old soon, I'm like, that makes me feel old. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's but I love that everyone gets introduced to it. I don't know. I was going to watch it with my girlfriend, but I'm like, you're probably not going to like it. Like, it's just too dated. I think, I don't know. It'd be, you'd have to view it through that lens. Yeah. That's what I'm curious to see. Like how, if you think like it's still shocking or, or anything now, because, because that's the kind of thing you have to watch it. You watch it. You can't help but watch it by today's standards. Then you also have to think, you know, what the fuck else was coming out in 1971 that this was playing against in terms of a context for what audiences were seeing at that point, right? Yeah. Because it's yeah. Uh, you have to think about it that way. 
All I remember is the iconic imagery of him having his eyes forced open. Like so that's, that's, what, that's always yeah. the thing. I was going to say, what do you know about this movie? That's all I know. His name's Sid Vicious. Nope. No, it's not. What is it then? It's, uh, his name is Alex. Oh, I thought he had a weird name. Okay. No, Sid Vicious is like a, is a, is a punk singer. He's a punk guy, right? Okay. Yeah. I don't know why I thought that then. Yeah. That's a but real I don't know anything. Being. Yeah. Sid, Sid, Vicious, <laughs> Sid Vicious is a real human being. Okay. I don't know. Any, I just know that he's forced to watch something because of that image. And that's all and I know. And it's in a post-apocalyptic future. That's all I know. Yeah. And so what about, and that, so that'll be interesting to see how dated that is now. Uh, yeah. Because it's a post-apocalyptic version of the future from 50 years ago. Oh my God. Yeah. So, yeah. No internet is always makes everything dated. Right. Yeah. No cell phones, yeah. no, uh, no screens. What, um, so what made you, what, what, what kept you from watching this film before? Uh, you know, there's always been a lot of films kind of on my bucket list, but in terms of why, like Kubrick, I think the shining and like 2001, like 2001, maybe it's one of my favorite films of all time. And I just thought like, I love sci-fi in that genre. And I don't know, it's clockwork orange. The description of it always seemed weird to me. That I was like, oh, maybe it's not something I can get on board with if I'm into this kind of Kubrick of the Shining 2001 Kubrick. If you're into 2001, this one's not going to be that far out of left field. Like, I, okay, I you'll yeah. have to go back. I did an episode on 2001 with with somebody, and they hated it. Oh, so no way! You have, have to go back and watch that episode or listen to that. Oh my episode. god, that moment it like gives me it. I just get chills watching that movie. That moment with the when humans discover how to use tools and then the ending with the baby and the eight, like I just thought it was introducing concepts that like they were so deep, so philosophical. Yeah, no, I did it with, I did it with Jacob Tierney and he did not dig it. <laughs> Man. Okay. I'm excited to watch this then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, without further ado, then we should just dive in. All right. Sounds good. Let's all go to the lobby. Get a All right, we just finished, and you look like you're bursting at the seams. Oh my god, what was that movie? <laughs> that was horrible. I wasn't like, what? I don't know what I was expecting because I loved his other movies, so that movie was so. Oh, I don't want to be, but it's like mediocre. Like, what is? I don't know. Maybe for the time, it must have been like. I don't know, made more sense, was more shocking. But when I viewed it now, I'm like, it's just some sexist dude filming rape scenes. <laughs> like, what? what is happening? That's that's not an unfair uh, description of the movie, to be fair. I don't know. I don't know. I, under, I think I understood what they were going for, of like the cycle, like his punishment is just as perverse as his crimes, you know? And like, I... I guess you're supposed to feel like guilt all around for, uh, I don't know, just like the act of like how the government imposes their kind of dictum of what you should be. But at the same time, he's like, I didn't like any of the characters. Like, I don't think you're supposed to like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. What did you think? Uh, it's so funny. Like I had a friend that was obsessed with this movie in high school Um and so he's probably I, a murderer, probably a murderer. No, I think he just, he just was really into, into Kubrick. Right. And so, yeah, uh, for him, 
so I saw it really early and it was one of those movies where it was just like, I think I, I put a lot of effort into pretending I got it and, yes. and, and went on about it. Cause it was one of those things that was like, Oh, it's a movie that you should love because it's, it's, it's well known and all this kind of shit, but is, you know, especially watching now, it's just like, it's horrific. It's like the guy, you know, just that scene where, you know, the nudity throughout is yes. ridiculous. Just that, that opening, that first time, too, when those, the, the gang in, in the camo uh, is just, like, running that girl back and forth on the stage for far longer than that shot needs to land on. <laughs> it's almost like, I don't know, because visually it was so good. Like, like set deck and just shot wise, I like was very compelled by cinematography wise, but I just think like, did Kubrick like really take in how violent the imagery was? Like how the audience, like, I don't know what, did he want us to get desensitized to it or just disgusted with him? Like, I don't know what the intention was. I mean, it's based on a book. So he's taking the, but it's also, he chose to make the film. Um, And the one, I remember the one that stuck with me forever was that, I mean, obviously, there's the singing of the rain sequence, right? Which we yes will unpack. But it's that that bit when he pulls like the the nipple parts and just like cuts with scissors. It's that just that imagery really stuck with me in in a not sexy way. (laughs) You know, because I saw this at an age where it's like seeing nudity in films was exciting because I hadn't seen pornography or anything like that or had sex at that point in my life so it was just like for me it was just like i get to see women's breasts but it's like this is not in the way i want to see them i was like this is not fun no it's disgusting (laughs) yeah Yeah. well you're almost like acting like alex is when he's when he's pushed through all this this kind of stuff and apparently that sequence wasn't working uh for the first they shot it took four days to shoot the whole scene in the rain sequence because there wasn't working and then kubrick scrapped all of his plans and that's when the singing in the rain idea came up and he just asked um Malcolm McDowell he's like can you dance and he's like yeah he's like just do whatever you want to do and he did and then came up with singing on the rain the fly and then they ended up getting the rights for it afterwards uh and there's a very there's a fun story that years later Malcolm McDowell ran into um Gene uh Wilder? No, no, not Gene Wilder. Gene, uh, the guy that sang sing in the Who rain. Who sang the song? Oh, I don't know um, his name. Anyway, ran into him at a party and he walked away from him in disgust. <laughs> oh my God. I can imagine why. I just was thinking like, man, I guess because we are viewing all this from like the 2021 lens. But I'm like, this is some sexist shit is going down in this movie. And I don't know. I don't think that was the intention either. Like that was just the dynamics back like all the female parts in this movie were just completely objects. It was so bizarre to see. And like, yeah, I mean, I guess the guess there's technically a couple of doctor characters who, uh, but, but for the most part, you're right. Uh, and the way that sex is described as the, the little old in and out. (laughs) Yeah. What the, and, and but then shot. even like the doctors having sex behind the while he's in a like oh, what is yeah, the you're point? Right. No, you're hundred percent right. That one nurse character, I backtrack everything <laughs> I said. That one nurse character was totally sexualized. What was the point? I just didn't under I don't know, it undercut its own message often, I think. Like 
I don't know. I guess we've done it, but it, I guess it inspired that whole culture of like ultra violent films, but we've, we're doing it better now. Like the Joker does it better than like this, I think it maybe it needed this, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely, I think what it's, it's definitely Cooper trying to make a comment on, you know, politics and reform and how you, you know, rehabilitize criminals because the whole point is that they, they take Alex in and they, they don't try to actually cure him. They just try to, they, they even say it is like the whole point of the experiment wasn't to cure him. It was just to stop him from committing crimes. Like yeah. He's, he's not actually reformed. He just doesn't, he just is ill from the feeling of, of doing it. And so he stops himself, but, but it doesn't, the, the, the lust and the desire to do those acts is still there. He just doesn't do it because the consequence is worse than how you feel. He no longer feels good doing it. He feels bad doing it, but it doesn't, but it's not like he chose to stop doing it. He's, he would still do it if it wasn't for those feelings. Right. Yes, totally. We're left. Yeah. So that's, that's the whole thing. And then, uh, and and that messes them up in a different way, and and so it's it's a, there's a whole bunch of different things going on in here. Uh, Kubrick himself pulled the movie out of the UK um, in the 1980s or later on. Because, oh, because there was a couple copy copycat crimes associated with the film. There was a uh, a woman that was raped by a group of men dressed up like the that group. Uh, there's another one, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, there's a homeless guy that was killed or, or beaten up Bradley by some guy yeah. like, in an Alex costume. And Jesus. so I think, I think between, I want to say 73 or 80 or something like that, there was a time, up until Kubrick's death in 2000, you couldn't get Clockwork Orange in the UK in a video store. Wow. And then once I mean, he- I kind of understand why. This seems like an incel training video. Like it is just, just so, just so desensitized. It's just so desensitized. And I but guess was, that's the intention, but I, yeah. I always saw it as like a weird art movie when I saw it in high school, you know? And so for me, I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to appreciate it because it's, 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 it's really smart and, and, and it's being violent for the sake of being violent, but it also has a greater message. And so that makes all the violence and all the sexuality. Okay. You know, but watching it now, you're just like, yeah, I guess. But there's other ways to get that message across. I mean, you look at like just the like you can see the pop culture, you know, influences throughout. Like The Simpsons, like Bart, I think in one Halloween episode, dressed up as Alex. Oh shit! You know what so, a weird thing to dress up as. Like I even remember it, on the new Space Jam trailer. They had the Clockwork Orange guy, Alex, in the background. And I'm like, do they understand this man is a psychopath in this movie? Like, what is happening? It's like having Hannibal Lecter there. But it's almost like this movie transcends, just like the cultness of the movie transcends any of that. Like, people don't think of it that way. Or I think Alex is seen as this, like, political poster boy you know uh and and it's less about what he does in terms of the horrific horrific things he does and just more about how the government uses him as a pawn Mm, yeah yeah i can i can understand this government angle and the religion that they inserted into it too 
Like even the I, fact that they're trying to rehabilitize him at the end to be the person who was at the beginning of the movie, like that's fucked up. Like if there's crazy, yes, he goes back to being who he was at the beginning of the movie. It's absolutely bonkers. Yeah. What did you think of all their their slang? Like all the see that kind of stuff I love because it's just so much world building stuff. You know what I mean? It's just so like the eggy wigs and the little It struck uh, me as like a brave new world kind of lingo. Yeah, I mean that's all from the novel. That's all all that stuff is in the mm. book. And so the guy I can't remember the name of the, the, the novelist off off top. I could look it up, but uh like all that kind of stuff is is in there. And so for me it's just that just leads some kind of credence to a unique world, which I'm always a big fan of. Uh if you can kind of create your own vernacular inside of a, a world, there's something fun about that if it works. Mm-hmm, um, totally. And it almost like, and, 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 and it is weird in how little things like that do separate it from the real world. Not in any way that makes it less disturbing. Yeah. Uh, but then there's also like, you know, he's singing, singing in the rain, which is a song from our world. Yeah. And then you see in like the record shop, there's the 2001 record there. Like it's, it's referencing Kubrick and pop culture in there. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's of this world and isn't it so alien to me. That's why, I like, I appreciated those aspects of, like, stylistically, it really achieved a tone and a post It had achieved a post-apocalyptic feel that was very unique to itself. Like, I didn't mind that there's no computers or blah, blah, blah. It's just an alternate universe. It's, no, yeah. it's, and it's not trying to, like, dive into that kind of sci-fi. It's more about the the mentality of of the criminal system in a weird way would it yeah. so i mean for me what makes this movie so much fun to watch the only thing that makes it fun to watch really because of all the shit that's going on is this malcolm mcdowell it just like firmly commits to every single beat of it yeah like if it he, wasn't for him i wouldn't i wouldn't be as i don't i wouldn't understand this movie if it wasn't for his performance because it was just so full on like he gave it everything yeah just like even and like the, and, the, and he's he goes from being like terrifying to kind of really empathetic in in some moments to uh you just hate him uh and then you feel bad for it so there's a lot going on inside there but just like that there's this little moment where he's with his the the dregs what are they called his his group the um yeah his droops or something like that Druid, yeah, dupes it's right before yeah. it, it it's in that moment right before they all pull rank on him uh and he just kind of walks and saunters over and then just plops down the other guy's lap just just, yeah. just like the way he moves is so fascinating um he's great and just like the commitment to just like doing i don't even know how they did all that stuff with the the eyes popped open um, mm. I do know that the person that was administering drops was an actual doctor that they had on set just to make sure his eyes wouldn't <sighs> get dehydrated. What a ridiculous, yeah, what a crazy scene to commit to with just having your eyes open for that long. There's no stand. way like, those things didn't scratch his cornea. There's no Oh my way. God. It's so, it's disturbing on, like it was, 
it was, it's still disturbing to me. Like we were talking earlier about like, I wonder if it'll hold, like, it's just so shocking this movie. Cause we would never do something, film something like this. And we've have like game of Thrones and like very like dark shit, but well, something a, about this is weirder. It's, it's funny how now because of like everything and, and all the conversations we've been having over the last couple of years, this movie is more shocking now than it would have been probably five years ago. <laughs> yes, Totally. I can't disassociate from the Me Too movement when I watch this movie because I'm like, what the, like, what is actually happening? Like, yeah, I don't know I, what he was intending in those and, moments. And I haven't, like, I could, I have also haven't looked it up to be fair. Um, but I know, like, some of the set stories, like, one of the set stories that I've heard from a Malcolm McDowell interview with the uh, the redheaded lady, the 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 second one that they go after and, and do terrible things to she yeah. said, he said that she came up to him because he was also how well, he, he was 27 at the time but playing a 15 year old sorry he, oh. alex is supposed to be 15 or 17 which is <laughs> what he is oh, okay yeah. i thought he was what? like 18 in high school okay, okay yeah but still he's still he's still playing super young the woman yeah. the redhead uh told <laughs> went up to malcolm and down and said, i guess today's the day you find out i'm a real redhead Oh my god! So she was always like throwing her sexuality at him in a way that was maybe disarming herself. But uh, yeah, fuck. I don't. Yeah, I, I'm very curious. What other than that kind of copycat effect? Did it have the sociological effect that people wanted? Like, did I don't like? I didn't watch it and take away like, oh, it's the government or oh, it's religion. It's like it just felt kind of he- it was hedging on all those aspects like it never it never affected me deeply on this authoritarian level that no, maybe it was trying to do no but you got to think that it's like what's happening right now it's it, this movie is like part of the counterculture movement that's coming out of like mm. the 1970s right so this is where you've got movies like even like straw dogs if we, i don't know if you've ever seen that dustin hoffman movie straw dogs but it's also no. very it's a better violent crime as well it's about like um, you know, husband and wife live like that are, you know, living in this cottage in the country, and these men come along and like brutally rape his wife. And it's Holy about, shit! And it's about like, what do you do? And then they just kind of walk away, and they're like, "What are you going to do about it, man?" And then it's about like him becoming unhinged because of that, and whether or not he'll. And the wife also emasculating him because he's like, "You didn't do anything. You didn't stop it. You're a, you're not a man either." And just oh like, my God. it's fascinating. Uh, but Harold and Maude's happening around this time. Um, what else? Like uh, all those other movies, like uh, Carnal Knowledge, uh, The Last Picture Show. Um, mm. I wonder if it was trying to speak to the fears of like teenage delinquents in that era of like rebellion and like playing to the fears that the older population had about them. Yeah, for sure, right? So it's like it, it's 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 definitely like I'm sure Kubrick meant to be um tantalizing, titillating uh as, yeah. it, as it were. But but just trying to like you know, so for me it's just like not that I'm trying to redeem it by any means, but I think it's 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 part of this era of filmmaking where people they're they're you know, they're pushing boundaries on purpose. And and trying to shock and trying to make these big mission statements and and this one, I mean it's hard to know because now it's like again it's fifty years later so it's like what what I, and I'm not familiar that much with the the politics of that era in terms of what they're trying to speak to, 
but it definitely feels like some really, you know, trying to, you know, make a big political statement by using violence and sexuality. Yeah, I guess so. I, I'm still, when it ended at that moment, when like the photos, I was like, wait, that's it. Like, this is, this is his arc. Like I just, I wanted more and I don't know what exactly I wanted. That, like, I don't know. That's almost the point too, is that it's like, he literally like the six, like, for them to succeed, they put him back to where he was at the beginning of the movie. So it's like, it's crazy. So, the, so the idea is like his arc is in the middle of the movie. Like he goes on this weird journey and ends up right back where he came from. Uh, and that's the, the kind of fucked upness of the system. This, and again, the system wasn't trying to like actually still improve him. They were just trying to undo what the government did because they got because the government got in trouble for it. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, you know, from my perspective too, it's like it evoked feelings of like I wanted him to be punished more. I wanted him to. I want. I don't think that his punishment for all the things he did at the beginning was ever equivalent. You know, and so it was, I guess as an audience member, it's like teaching you, you have the sadistic, you want to see people suffer. Like the, the parents were talking to Joe and they're just like, you, the, you made people suffer. So you have to suffer in accordance. And I felt that as an audience member of like, this guy deserves to suffer a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he chooses that cause, cause that's the whole thing is that he's in jail proper and finds out about this. Oh, there's this loophole that if I do this other thing, I can get out of jail faster. So I can't remember how long he's actually supposed to be in jail for, but it's a lot longer of a term and it gets shortened because he agrees to do this experimental therapy. Yes. Yes. I think he was supposed to be 14 years and then he was only there two months. Yeah. Because he was quote unquote rehabilitized. But if, I mean, you look at like, like, you know, just talking about the, the prison system in North America, particularly in the States, uh, you know, it's all privatized. It's, you know, it, and again, it's not about actually rehabilitizing criminals, right? Mm. Uh, uh, the way that if you, I don't know if you ever saw, um, I wasn't aware of all of this until I saw, there was this um, Michael Moore documentary called, uh, I think I'm going to get the name wrong, but I think it's something like, uh, where do we invade next or something or who, who do we invade next? And yeah. I talked about the idea of like invading all these different countries to steal like their good ideas for America. And one, have you seen this documentary? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I've heard about this. Yeah. So there's this great sequence where they're talking about prison and they go to, I want to say it's Norway. Uh, it's definitely a Scandinavian country. Um, and the idea is that their prison system is amazing. It's like literally people live in like little cottages and they can bike around. And it's really about, you know, building these people back up. You know, they're even like, there's a moment where they're in the cafeteria and the guy, and there's the chef and he's like prepping dinner for everyone. And uh, Michael Moore is like, Oh, what are you in for? He's like, Oh, first degree murder. And he's holding a knife when he tells him that. Right. And Michael yeah. like, what the fuck? And you, they let you around knives. He's like, yeah, I guess they do. I'm better, you know, I'm, I don't feel like using this on somebody, but that's just the idea is like, you know, by, you know, I think that the trope in the American prison system is always that it's like, you know, you go to jail to become a better criminal, right? Mm. Because all these people are just angry and put down upon where like in other countries, like they build you up and they're like, they like rehabilitation is meant to actually make someone be able to go back and not do that thing again or want to. Yes. And, but in a way, because you've 
you know, you change their mind. Yes. So do you think like maybe if the Alex, but they're definitely, but they're speaking against that in this movie, right? Because they're not yeah. changing his mind. They're just creating like uh, an averse effect when he sees something. Right. But yes. it, doesn't, it doesn't make him not want to do it. It just makes him feel ill when he does it. Yes, exactly. You know what was the tough thing? Cause I would, now you just pitched me a more interesting movie. <laughs> uh, like, like, cause it's just cause he started off as a sociopath, psychopath. And it's like, it's hard to relate to that kind of level of depravity. If maybe if he was 15 years old, like as cast, it would have been a, a weird, a different perceptual thing of like, wow, a child is being punished right now. Like a child is going through this, but like, because he looks like an adult, it just feels different to me that he's being punished in that way. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the version, it would be interesting to, I mean, you could never remake this movie because there would just be an outcry from the purists of, of cinema saying, how dare you remake a Kubrick film? Uh, but that said, like, I love your, what you're saying with the idea of like, if you were to actually cast someone of the age of the character, like that would be far more disturbing and terrifying. Yeah. hundred you know, percent. It would make me think of like, um, you know, funny games or like, I don't know. Do you ever see that, um, movie kids? No, the, the, an iconic movie. Yeah. The Harmony Corman wrote it. Har- and, yeah. Corman. And I'm yeah. trying to remember the, I think something Clark was the director. Uh, that movie, uh, it was like Chloe Savani's big breakout, right? Mm-hmm. She was the one that came out of that movie. And that is, oh God, go watch that movie. If you want like this version, actually that's kind of like the most modern version of, of Clockwork Orange in a weird way. Like they don't, oh. go through all, they don't go through all the experiments and stuff like that. But in terms of like watching people of the age do and say terrible things, and and the and the disturbing nature of that kids is kind of what we're discussing right now huh okay uh outside of like they're not like doing violence and that kind of stuff but more about the sexuality and and you know especially in terms of like you know the me too movement that movie is oof it's a it's a hard watch wow okay that's a movie that it's like i loved it and i hated it at the same time because when i was done i'm just like i never need to see that movie again it was so (laughs) upsetting to me but i'm yes but I couldn't recommend it highly enough. That, that to me was like, I watched Requiem for a Dream like three weeks ago and it's the first time I ever watched it. That's a movie I'm never going to watch again, but I'm so glad I did. You know, like it's like, it's important to watch those films, but they just leave you so disgusted at the end that it's so difficult to recover yeah. or like, it's just not a cinematic experience as you know it. It's just, it just cuts deep. Like yeah. this, I wish I, that's what I was hoping for from something like this, despite, I didn't know anything about it, but I was just like, Oh, like maybe it'll make me like feel disgusted in a way that I learned something, you know, or I empathize, but I just left it equally as numb as when I started. It wasn't, it, it did it, but maybe in 1971, it would have been a different story. Yeah. Um, I mean, it'd be interesting to read reviews of it from the seventies, like reading, you know, I don't think Ebert must've done a review of it. Let me see. I'm sure he did see what he thinks about it. Uh, I I can give you a fun, um, fun fact. If you want to, do you know, you know, the guy that was the, uh, the bodybuilder, the bodylifter? Yeah. Who is, who's he? Do you know who he was? No. David Prowse. David Prowse. You know who that is? 
No, no idea. He was the 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 actor who was the body of Darth Vader. No way! Oh shit! Oh we were, wow! We were talking about how uh, the Star Wars 50th anniversary is coming up. Oh, um, that's great. Uh, yeah. So there's just a fun little fun fact that was David Prowse no, uh, in one of I his new on-screen on-screen roles. Well, you know, and this is you know half a decade before he shoots, he becomes Darth Vader. Shit. Okay. It had a lot of like cast members I recognized from that era. I, I just have to say that, like, you know, I went into this Kubrick film. I've only watched three of his films, The Shining, 2001, and Full Metal Jacket. And, like, all those films are very different from each other, but I left those, like, these are some of my favorite films of all time. And watching this, I'm like, man, it's, he just, he's, at least he swings for a different genre real hard, and sometimes I think he misses, and I don't know. It, maybe in some other people's opinions he doesn't, but to me, it's like, it's not nowhere near the level of those three films. Yeah, here's, here's I'll just read the end of, of Ebert's review. Okay. Uh, he seems to hate it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it starts off with just talking about how much he hates the character of Alex. Uh, I don't know quite how to explain my disgust of Alex. This is how he starts the review. <laughs> Um, and then he ends with, with, with they've really hyped the Clockwork Orange for more than it's worth and a lot of people will go if only out of curiosity too bad in addition to the things I mentioned above things that I really got mad about Clockwork Orange commits another perhaps even more unforg- unforgivable artistic sin it's just plain talking and boring you know there's something wrong with the movie when the last third feels like the last half wow that's pretty how I feel about this movie <laughs> And I feel like Ebert feels, honestly. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I have a weird... I, yeah. Like I said, I have a weird relationship with it because I, I, I watched it very young at a time where I'm like, I think yeah. I'm, supposed to, I'm supposed to love it, so I love it, right? Where yeah. watching it now, it's just like... I think it's interesting. I think it's definitely a kind of movie that you can't ignore, that you walk away thinking about, which is always... You know, I, I can't tell you how many movies I watch these days that a week later I forget that I watched it. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's just because they're okay and they sit in the middle where this movie, at least like, you know, for, for despite all of the, you know, the many flaws we've discussed and just in terms of like content and uh, an approach to it, you know, I think it's hard to deny like, like just the, you know, the filmmaking is great. Uh, but then you, you, it's hard to not walk away and just like li- little things about this kind of just stick with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, the imagery is so visceral and I think that's going to be my takeaway of this. I just, I just enjoyed a lot of the shots in this, like they visually it's just stuck with me. And I think those things will influence how I, I see things like artistically it's a, yeah, it's a, it's good. It just wish story wise, I, I wish it. I wish it fulfilled that Kubrick desire I was really craving. Like yeah. I was saving this movie because I thought, oh, this is just as good as those other ones. But <laughs> I think I think it maybe is just a bit dated for me. Yeah, I think if I ever rewatch it, it would be if my my kids ever wanted a Kubrick kick and wanted to wanted to sit through, and I wouldn't cute tee them up at all. I like, <laughs> told you. Like let's watch yeah, Paths of Glory. No, 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 let's watch Paths of Glory and then let's watch Strange Love and then this is a double bill. <laughs> God. You know I wonder what I always wondered what like Kubrick 
felt about all his films after the fact because you know he's so like mythicized for how he treated actors like he was like oh like so dictatorial and just savage in a lot of aspects and then we like for a long time we were like oh my god he got the best performances out of his actors it's amazing he's like a he's ruthless and like cruel you know it's just that that does not float today you don't need to do that to make a movie no and and the closest equivalent to that although i i don't i haven't heard that he's cruel uh is fincher like fincher is known for doing you know dozens and dozens of takes Mm, yeah um that seems like an annoyance, but it also well, seems to me seems kind of fun, honestly. Yeah. There's something fun about it. I think like the way I've heard it described from Fincher about why he does it is the idea that it's like, it's to get at the heart of a real performance from an actor. You have to break the break them in the sense that it's like, they're no longer they're So they're bored with the scene that they're now just being a real human being and not putting uh, it. And so I can see that if you're working with somebody who is not a professional actor and you just need to get, you need to get them to that place where it's like, they're just not doing the lines as lines. Yes. And they're just saying them because they're so familiar and comfortable with them now. I can see that, but it's like, you know, to make Tom Cruise walk down the street 80 times, taking his gloves off (laughs) feels a bit over the top. I'd like to think he reserves it for scenes that are actual scenes. Like it sounds crazy to me. I heard like, you know, I, I always dreamed of doing that as an actor. I, I wanted to, I wish there was an acting class that offered you the full hour of doing a five minute scene over and over again. Cause I just would have, I just want to see what happens to your mind when you start to lose a sense of what the hell is going on. Ingrid Venager did uh, a short, I think, or she did some kind of like an, an art project where she reshot the same scene a hundred times um or something of that i'm getting it wrong of what she did but it was something like that where she read like in repetition redid the same thing over and over again to see if she could find something new with it right and that idea that it's like you know after you have to keep on digging deep and trying and just pushing yourself out uh and i believe in that like i deal with writing like i when i when i when i go to write to work on an idea, I force myself and I'm brainstorming to come up with 50 ideas. Mm. Cause I find like the first 10 or 20 or cliches or have already been done. And it's not until you just start really digging in uh, that you start to unearth unique, different things that you might not have originally thought of. If you just like said, Oh, I'm going to come up with 10 ideas. You know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I wonder how it works for comedy though, because I always find that, the freshness and the spontaneity is so great. And then when it gets stale, it just, everything sounds unfunny. Yeah. But then you have to trust it too. Right. And that's always, Mm. that's always the hardest thing with comedy, especially when, where I found where it's just like bringing in fresh and new people you get, it's like, is this still funny? Because the the instinct as a comedy writer is always to just keep on rewriting it and and keep on making it. But then there comes a point where it's like, well, it's not as funny anymore. And, I know, and I can't even judge that anymore because I knew it was funny at one point, but is it not funny because I've read it 15 times or is it not funny because it's actually not that funny? Mm. So, so at that point you just have to rely on other people and, and, and their gut. And then also I think like something that's funny on the page when you go to actually shoot it uh, and perform and people are performing it, it's like it, it becomes obvious whether or not it's funny. 
yes then but then after that then you're into like then you're into a different problem you're doing take after take after take and it's like fuck is this funny anymore we're finding something different yeah i think lose your mind no and comedy is always the best it's the best for me when it's just like something surprises me you know Mm. especially in comedy i find just being behind the monitor that it's like comedy is best when it's like even though i know these lines down pat when yeah. the performer says them in a way that I forgot that joke was coming. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's just funny naturally. And I have to totally stop myself. From, I'm, I'm a dead giveaway on set. Like if, if you hear me like almost crying at the end of a take. Yeah. I have a very specific sound. And it's like, cut. Like you hear that. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I enjoyed. <laughs> That's so good. Do you, did you find surprising things editing our movie? Like after a, after a while of not sitting on it and then watching it again, did like things surprise you that you didn't think would happen? Oh, little things. Well, you know what it is? There's always like, I always try to do, our movie was tough because we were just so, you know, shooting on such a tight schedule with so many scenes and so many different beats that it's like, you know, you always get nervous when you can't. Because I always try to do like at least three takes that I like. Because um, mm. I find like the first take is a lie. The first take I like is usually a lie. I'm like, I liked it because everything was finally working, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best. Right. So mm. I always like to try to walk away from a scene, getting three takes. I like, okay. Um, and I, and, and the day, the part time with our movie was just that we had to move so fast that, you know, to get three takes, just to get three takes at all. Was sometimes, yes. Was sometimes really, really challenging. Uh, and then, so sometimes you just said like, well, I got one take. I know I liked but I'm like, yeah. actually, was it actually good? Or was it just like, we finally got something. Uh, and then usually then I still fought and I'm like, no, I need a second take just in case. I always need the, the safety take or the fucking take. Uh, but I think I found just going through, and I also just ignore like poor script supervisors. I don't read any of the notes. I ignore all of the notes because I want to watch every take fresh because I always be surprised by it. I'm like, oh, there was something there at the beginning that I wasn't really... Uh-huh. Like I had seen this a different way too. And it's also like diff- definitely like by the time you start, like I find like the scenes at, that we shot at the beginning of the process, I always definitely have to go through those with a fine tooth comb because I think there's a famous quote that it's like, I can't remember who, who was attributed to, but um, you know, every director knows how to direct the movie after they've made it. <laughs> You know, mm. that, that's when you figure out how, and, and then I think it's equivalent for acting to it. It's like, I'm sure most performers were like, well, now I know how to make, how to play this character now that I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's and true. If you, and, if, and if you could go back and, and have another crack at some scenes, you'd probably approach them differently. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I've always felt that way, but at the same time, as I've become more experienced, I realized as long as you get one that you're happy with, it doesn't even matter after that. Like, like that everyone's happy with one take. Like I don't, I disregard everything else. I'm like, okay, well I did my job of like trying to get one thing that served the story. Yeah. That's just it. Yeah. And so it's like, for me, and it's also like the movie kind of discovers itself over time too. Right. And I think that's mm-hmm. where that quote comes from. It's just like the tone, you know, producers always ask, like, what's the tone of the movie? It's like, eh, I know it's in this range and ballpark, but it's like, it's such a bullshit thing to say, you know, what the tone of a movie is until you start making oh. it. Oh, because the movie dictates, yeah, you know, if it's a comedy, you know, if it's like inside of a genre or something, but to say, yeah. oh, I know the exact tone, it's like almost impossible to know that 
to a, like to a specific degree until you start playing, especially in anything where you've got like a bigger cast. Cause you, you've got to figure out how they play off of each other and what yes. runner are at. Right. So for me, the first couple of days on anything, whether it's comedy or drama are like just playing within levels of big and small. Let's say, let's do some bigger takes and some smaller mm-hmm. takes and see what starts to feel right for this particular movie. And then, mm-hmm. you know, within a couple of days, you know, you're you're playing less outside of the 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 margins, and you're just kind of focusing. On, oh, this is kind of what feels right, and then that's kind of like what dictates my taste moving forward. Going, oh, that felt like in the ballpark of what we've been doing with the other things, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. You know, it it has me thinking of like <laughs> back to this movie maybe they got a lot of things they didn't want. Like, you know, like maybe in hindsight, they're like, this is a different movie that exists here. Like maybe Kubrick watched it and thought he could have been better. You know, I don't know. I'd like to think that because it just seems like it's missing something and I don't quite know what. Uh, I mean, it's also, yeah, it's just like, it's, it's a weird one to judge on, on modern sensibilities too. Cause it's not like this, clear cut linear story. Yeah. I mean it actually neither neither I mean, was two thousand one, right? Oh, two thousand one's even less so. I mean this does yeah. actually have a linear story. Like you can kind of track the whole story across. But just yeah. it, it doesn't drive itself in a way that modern movies mm. do. Uh two thousand one is hundred percent an art film, right? Yeah. Um, no doubt. I, I almost prefer that. <laughs> like I, I don't I don't prefer the middling notion. Like I want my yeah, I don't like the little idea that it's art film, but then it's still trying to appeal. Like that, that to me never, never works. But yeah, but all of the, but there's, there's very, like, they, all of his films are like that. Like none of them really take a clear path to a structure. Like even, yeah, you know, Full, Full Metal Jacket's this weird movie that's almost two movies within a movie, right? Yes, yes, totally. You know, like I, I always loved, uh, and that's a movie I haven't revisited since high school, but I love the boot camp sequence and mm. i was have like, you done it on the po- you haven't done it on the podcast no i haven't yet. done it on the podcast i should find someone because i haven't watched it in a long time but i always loved the boot camp sequence and then i was like meh on the on the the war sequence oh my god the sniper scene had me like oh on the edge I, I gotta i gotta rewatch it because i i think back that then i was a big theater nerd so there's something about those that those drill those boot camp scenes that were so like theatrical like more of a like a play because there's yes these big, long dialogue scenes so true it was it was yeah it was structured like a play all those kind of just i don't know I, yeah big it's incredible yeah see like uh, that thinking about those movies make me happy <laughs> That's, yeah thinking about this movie does not i i imagine uh, eyes wide shut also can't possibly age well in in post 2018 oh totally about these secret sex societies right i i don't even i haven't watched that one either i don't know what it's really about yeah. i've uh that's another one where i'm like i'll revisit it at some point i just don't feel the the need like this is the movie i probably wouldn't have popped in outside of you know doing it for the podcast yeah so i i don't know what i was signing up we're for, strange love honest. strange love i could pop it in and enjoy it yeah. right? or the shining I'm a, uh, 
<laughs> I want to choose for my ne- the next time I appear on this podcast a good movie. So hopefully that happens. Well, you can't know if it's going to be good. <laughs> I, I know you're right. I chose this because it was so critically lauded, you know? Uh, so it's like, awesome. I can't fail. But that's also yeah, what's awesome. Right. I, I mean, kind of like this podcast at its best is when someone's totally shocked by how they feel about a movie. Yeah, totally. Because I do have such an affection. Like, I admire him for what he's done to film. Like, he's changed the game in so many ways. And also, his introduction for me to science fiction was monumental. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of what he's doing. Like, he always does a different genre, right? Every movie of his is in a different genre. Uh, and that was kind of his thing. He only made a dozen movies or less. Uh, and this was his, I guess, his... I don't even know. This is a political movie in a way, I guess. Yeah, I can't really think of. Well, Doctor Strangelove, I guess. Yeah, that's a war. But then Path to Glory is a war film too. Um, I mean, that's a comedy. I guess that's more like he's just doing satire there in terms of yeah of genre. He's doing less about politics than he is just going. This is his comedy. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Well, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, thanks for doing it, man. Thanks for having me, dude. This we is great. Well, and when this is all over, we'll we'll do one in, in person because it's always fun, too. Oh, my God. I can't wait to go to your home theater. Yeah, one day. One day, sir. It's going to happen. <laughs> all right, for sure. Thanks, dude. All right, buddy. Well, enjoy your last day of quarantine. I will. I really will. Can't and, wait to uh, go for a walk. And we'll see you on the other side. See you soon. Bye. Bye, buddy. Thanks for joining us for A Clockwork Orange. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.